a couple of uh, housekeeping items uh, before we delve into the word today. Um, I'm free to share this with you because Nancy is up in Fairfax, Virginia today, and so um, I can publicly address the subject without uh, her hearing it. Uh, and that is to say that the session has approved the collection of a, of a love gift offering for Nancy uh, in celebration of the ministry that she has done here in this place. Um, that love offering will be collected over the course of the next month. We would ask you to make those contributions to the office designated um, that it's for Nancy's love gift. Um, and then we will write one lump sum check that will be presented to her at a reception on Sunday, April the 2nd following the 11 o'clock worship service. You will want to be in worship on April the 2nd um, because we will have in the context of that worship service what we would call a leave taking. Um, when people come, we celebrate their arrival and we have a worship service where they become installed into the position that they're going to serve in ministry. And so it seems fitting that when they leave, we kind of undo that in preparation for them being able to go on to the thing that God has called them to, as well as to begin preparing us to receive another in their place. Also, on Wednesday, April the 5th, now I'm giving you a full month's warning, right? Everybody should be able to schedule these things on their calendar pretty effectively. On Wednesday, April the 5th, the youth will be hosting their annual Pasta 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 fundraiser in the Fellowship Hall. That will be followed by a children's musical here in the sanctuary, and that will be Nancy's last day with us. And so you will want to prepare yourselves to be present on April the 2nd, as well as on the evening of April the 5th, in order to say goodbye to her and thank her for the marvelous ministry that she's done in this place. Um, I also want to address the concern of some of you who think that Dr. Eddington is not in the pulpit because he told a joke last Sunday. <laughs> but I will not be telling jokes today. No. He is, uh, he is on a scheduled vacation uh, with Tricia this, this week. Uh, every year they spend with great dear friends of theirs from Kilgore, Texas, from the very first church that they served. Um, and they spend this week in Colorado with them, although I begged them, please don't ski. And so he said, no, I'll just go down the mountain on an inner tube, which, which left me no less concerned about his welfare. <laughs> please pray with me. Holy God, we thank you that you gather us unto yourself. We thank you that your radiance pours forth. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to be caught up in it. We would ask, Lord God, that you would reveal to us the truth of your word and that you would then send us forth by the power of your spirit with the courage to do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are going to be today unpacking this text. This is the story of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. We're going to be unpacking it verse by verse, essentially. So if you want to open your Bibles with me, you are welcome to do so. This text begins, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him, and they went up to the mountain to pray. Now you and I, throughout his ministry, observe Jesus in times where he's teaching to large crowds, to, to large gatherings, you might think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's, there's a whole crowd of people there when Jesus is teaching. Or you might think of the feeding of the 4,000 or the feeding of the 5,000. There were obviously large crowds of people gathered together whom he was teaching. There are also times when he steals away and focuses his teaching on just the 12 disciples. 
When he has things that he wants to communicate to them, things that he is ready to teach them, to equip them for the ministry that he knows they're going to be called to do. And then there are times when he chooses to be with his three most intimate friends. He draws away from time to time with Peter, James, and John. They are the only three disciples that are present in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus is betrayed. And they are the only three disciples who are present on the mountain of transfiguration when the glory of the Christ is revealed. And the hike up the mountain of transfiguration then only includes the four of them, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Now, the announced purpose of the trip was what you might call a prayer retreat. But Jesus knew that once they arrived, a meeting was scheduled to take place. A meeting that on one level, Jesus would have very much been looking forward to, a reunion of sorts. But on another level, Jesus knew that the purpose of the meeting was his final preparation. He knew that his mission on this earth was reaching its climax. He knew that he was about to do for humanity what no mere mortal could ever achieve. God was preparing him, and God was preparing those who were with him. You and I enter into the season of Lent this Wednesday. It is a season of preparation for those of us who want to be there with Christ, long to be present with him during his passion. But in order to do that, we need to be prepared. The passion is not something that you can just barge into without any preparation. In order to know the meaning of the cleansing of the temple on the Monday of Holy Week, in order to be able to understand what happens on Palm Sunday, in order to be ready for the events of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, you and I need a time. God knows we need to be prepared over time to really experience the depth of those days. For Peter, James, and John, this is one such experience. God's trying to prepare them for what he knows is imminent, what he knows is ahead. So they've gone up the mountain to pray. And as they are praying, the appearance of Jesus' face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. In one of the other Gospels, it says that his raiment became so white as, as no bleach on earth could bleach it. He glowed. Up to this point in his ministry, the fullness of his identity, they knew him as Jesus. They knew him as Mary's son. They knew him as the Galilean. They knew him as the cousin of John the Baptist. They knew that he was a miracle worker, but they did not yet fully understand that he was the eternal son of God, that he was indeed the Christ. Up to this point, Jesus had been what you and I might call a sleeper. He had been living in their midst, but he was about to reveal his true mission for humanity. He was about to come out of hiding, and he was about to do all that God had sent him to the earth to do. And so as Peter, James, and John prayed with him, it was, it was as if his physical body, his human body, could no longer contain the magnificence of who he really is. It began to radiate out of each one of his pores. 
If you think about all the pores on the human body, I want you to imagine a flash of lightning appearing out of each one of them. That was the kind of shocking scene that happened on top of the mountain of transfiguration. It was as if Jesus himself became a blinding light. When John says in the first chapter of his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, he wasn't kidding. John had seen his glory, and he knew that it was unique. Peter, James, and John saw the revealed glory of Christ, and they saw it with their own eyes. I imagine that as this was going on, they kinda, they're kind of looking over and checking in with each other. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? It was awe-inspiring for sure. And when they looked up, when finally their, their eyes became accustomed to the light, they realized that Jesus was not alone. Scripture says two men, Moses and Elijah, also appearing in glorious splendor, were talking with him. Now this would have been unusual to say the least. But my guess is that these guys had been with Jesus long enough, Peter, James, and John had been with Jesus long enough to come to expect the unexpected. They're now at the point where they anticipate miracles. But Moses and Elijah, these are guys who've been dead for hundreds of years. Elijah in particular, his appearance on the earth was awaited. Every good Jewish family set a place for Elijah every year at Passover. Every year, the youngest child at the table went to the door and opened it to welcome Elijah in, hoping that the time had come when God was going to reveal the salvation of his people. For Peter, James, and John, the appearance of Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration would have been a confirmation like no other that Jesus was the Messiah, that the promise of God for the salvation of Israel was very near at hand. There was a plot unfolding. Scripture doesn't say this, but I feel fairly confident that Peter and James and John, they wanted to know what was being talked about among those three, because it says they were talking to Jesus. And so I can imagine that even with heads bowed and eyes shaded, they probably inched forward. They leaned in to hear. Wouldn't you want to know what those three guys were talking about? What they heard probably surprised them. A plan was coming together. Details were being laid out. The scripture says they spoke together about Jesus' departure. They talked of fulfillment. They named the place Jerusalem. I can't tell you how many times over the course of my life I have read this passage of scripture. I can tell you that until just very recently, I'd never seen that sentence. I'd never paid attention to what it was that Moses and Elijah had come from heaven to earth to spend time talking with Jesus about. It was serious business. I thought the transfiguration was about the disciples coming to understand who it was they were dealing with. I thought it was about the disciples having the opportunity to see the revealed glory of the Christ so that they would know for certain that their faith would be confirmed within them, that they would no longer have to have a faith that was a hope in things unseen. They would have seen his glory. But now I'm not so sure that's what the transfiguration is about at all. I think it's fair to say it's a reminder to Jesus of who he really is. That it's the confirmation of his calling. That God wanted him to know for certain, with absolute clarity, that who he is as the eternal son of God, the living Christ, 
was not diminished by his humanity in any way. That Moses and Elijah and every other saint throughout history knew what was coming. It was a confirmation of his call. A time for him to be encouraged and emboldened for the journey to Jerusalem, the trek to Calvary, the march to the cross. Moses and Elijah had come from heaven to earth to talk with Jesus about his departure, to remind him of the eternal nature of the Father's will, to rehearse with him the details of the plan, to synchronize their watches, so to speak, to set their sights together on the prize, the upward calling, the unfolding will of God in human history, the salvation of the world. And it was, frankly, too much for the disciples to take in. It's one thing to have a mountaintop experience that's just glory. It's another thing for that to be interrupted with the real mission of Christ upon the earth. As the men were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, stop them. Don't let them leave. Let us stay right here. Let us bask in the glow of your glory forever. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then scripture acknowledges this. Peter had no idea what he was saying. Let me tell you, if you've got no idea what you're saying, you should stop talking. Here's what happens if you don't. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were justifiably afraid. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Shut up and listen to him. God doesn't make a lot of these kind of appearances in scripture. When he does, we should pay attention. God reveals his presence and God reveals his son on the mountain of transfiguration. You know, throughout the scriptures, we hear Jesus claiming the father. The Father and I are one. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. A lot of times that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. Let me tell you, it happens from the other side as well. God claims Jesus uniquely as his own. At his baptism by John in the Jordan River, it says that the heavens were open and a voice proclaimed, This is my Son, the Beloved One. Listen to him. Does that sound familiar? It happened again on the mountain of transfiguration. God claims Jesus as his own son. At this point, the disciples wisely bowed their heads and shut their mouths and proceeded to follow Jesus as he led them down the mountain. I call this part of the story re-entry. In my own experience, re-entry is the most difficult part of any ministry or mission experience. Re-entry coming down off a spiritual high, coming down off a mountaintop experience with the Lord. We'd very much like a few days, even a few hours, to decompress, to reemerge, to re-enter the realities of life in the valley. But you see, the people that have been waiting at the foot of the hill, they haven't had the experience on the top of the mountain. They haven't, they haven't been in the presence of the glory. They're just clamoring and clawing for what the Christ can do for them today. For any of you who have been on a mission trip, you know the reality of reentry. You know how hard it is to have been 
in Philadelphia or in D.C. or in Honduras or in, in Mississippi or in Louisiana, wherever all the places on, on a Hopi Indian reservation, wherever it is that God leads us over the course of a year to go and to minister, of, to, minister to others with acts of compassion, you know the high that is associated with that. And you know the near trauma of coming home. Because everybody who's here, you know, they think you've been on vacation. And man, they want to set up their meetings and get their stuff done. And where's that stuff that I needed you to do last week while you were in Honduras? And you're like, oh, re-entry. You know, when the space shuttle is coming back to the Earth, it's the most dangerous and painful time. Re-entry. People can burn up, not in ministry, but on re-entry. Listen to this re-entry story. When Jesus and the three came off the mountain. When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Now, just so you know, large crowds almost never, never gathered just quietly, waiting for whatever it was that Jesus might have to say. Large crowds usually indicates people in great need coming to make demands of the miracle worker. Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. He's my only child. A spirit seizes him and he screams and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him. It's destroying him. Here is a person in real need. Would you agree? Here is a person who has come to God for a solution because, frankly, they can't find a solution on their own. No help that the world has to offer is an answer for the trauma being experienced in this family. This is a person who has come to Christ because he knows of nowhere else to go. And he's right. Listen then to the treatment he gets. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long do I have to put up with you? Bring the child to me. Now at that point, wouldn't you be a little afraid to present your child? I want you to know that Jesus is not responding here to the need of that father bringing his son. Jesus is responding to the failure of his own disciples to exercise the authority that they had been given to help that man, to help his family. At the end of the litany of what's wrong with the child, the father says, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. If Jesus' reply surprises you, if you don't think that it sounds like something that Jesus should say, you need to remember that Jesus had already given his disciples all the authority that was required to drive out evil spirits. He had given that authority to the 12. He had then given that authority to the 70 before he sent them out two by two into the surrounding villages to do ministry. Jesus had given his authority over evil spirits to his disciples. And they had been commissioned to exercise that authority, to help people in need when that particular problem was presented to them, and they didn't do it. Apparently, when Jesus went up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, when he was out of sight, they somehow became paralyzed or confused or immobilized as if, well, we really don't know where he is and we really don't know when he's coming back, so we better not do anything until he does because we don't want to do anything wrong been commissioned for ministry. Do it. There is a legitimate reason for Jesus's exasperation with his disciples. He had spent countless hours equipping them for the work of ministry. But all that time, many of them had apparently 
simply been basking in the glow of his presence, spending time in worship, spending time in Bible study, spending time in Christian fellowship is not for our own edification. It is not so that you and I can sit around as if we're in a tanning booth and bask in the glow of the glory of God. We are here on this earth and we are here in this place to be equipped for the work of ministry. This is the staging area. This is where we synchronize our watches. This is where we get our plan together in order that each one of us can go forth from this place to respond to the call of God in our own lives, to do the ministry we've been given the authority and the equipping to do. Jesus knew that his time with the disciples was now very short, and he was frustrated that all the territory that they had covered together was apparently kind of lost on them. I believe that too often congregations become dependent upon the presence of one person. The expectation that that person does the ministry. Let me tell you that that leads to burnout. That leads to exasperation. It leads to wondering if all of the years you've invested in all of the people who you've been equipping for the ministry, if all of that is somehow lost. Jesus knew his time with those disciples was running short. Do you know that that is always true with us? Our time together is always running short. There are not enough hours in any day, and there are not enough days in any week, and there are not enough weeks in any year, and there are not enough years left before the coming of Christ to do all the work of ministry to which we have been called. God may call you away tomorrow. God may call me away tonight. You better not be overly dependent on me doing all the ministry, and I better not be overly dependent on you doing all the ministry. We both better be doing all that we're called to do in the short time we have left. You say to yourself, well, I'm not going to be called away. I'm living here forever. No, you're not. At some point, you are making a final move. God could call you heavenward. God's going to call some of us away to college. God's going to call some away to family obligations. God's going to come call some away to new business opportunities. God's going to call some away to the mission field. God's going to call some away to new ministry opportunities. And in any case, our time together is short. It always is. Even if it's another 40 years, it's still short. That's not enough time to do all that we've been called together to do. And so every one of us has to get busy. We can't just bask in the glow of one another, although I acknowledge that's pretty fun. It is time, having been called by God, having been commissioned by Jesus Christ, having been empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit, having been drawn into a rich fellowship that is unbelievable, it's time for each and every one of us to be mobilized in ministry to answer the specific calling in our own lives for what God has called us here to do and to be, never becoming overly dependent on one person to do the ministry that is the responsibility of us all. So I ask you, are you going to continue to just bask in the glow? Or are you ready to do together what God has called us together in Christ to do? Amen.